Yo, what's up? It's your girl, Father Long Legs. You know me, Daddy T, father, mother, and baby, whatever you want to call me. Um, here is another episode of You Can Tell Me Anything, but this is a real special one. I actually interviewed a confidant, nay, I should say, a super confidant, Julia. Um, she's been a listener for quite a while now, interacting with the episodes. Um, I love talking to Julia about sort of a lot of the deeper topics we get into on the pod, such as trauma therapy, somatic therapy, um, and just like the holistic brain development. And recently we started like chatting on Instagram and she told me um, that she was studying research psychology or studying neuroscience and all that. And, you know, I talk about this on the pod a lot in ways where I know nothing. So I was really, really intrigued and I asked her to come on the pod to talk about it with me and she did and she is so intelligent and well-spoken and just empathetic and such a cool person. I think you guys are gonna really love this episode. Um, I do have an update. Her good confession at the time was that she put an offer for the house and actually um, at the time of this release, her and her partner actually got the house. So congratulations, Julia. That is so, so, so cool. Um, very, very uh, excited for your new beginning and new chapter. And um, I can't wait for you guys to listen to this episode. I don't have many announcements. Um, I'll probably get more into this uh, when I'm able to. But I, uh, you know, I did lose my job this week. It's very new. So I will have some free time to put together new projects uh, as well as, I guess, looking for a job. Woohoo! Fun time to be going through this. Um, but uh, I'm staying optimistic, and um, I do have a couple um, things on the horizon, including I will be doing the self-care show, which is um, the new version of Comedy Quarantine, on Tuesday, February 23rd. So that will be fun. Um, you guys should definitely follow that show if you're not already. Um, because it is uh, Sam Varela, our lovely producer from Comedy Quarantine, ca has carried on the legacy. And I'll also be on Adam Conover's show on March 4th. Um, I'll be putting my show lineups, and these are all virtual, FYI, on my website as well, so you can find that out. And really, you know, follow me on Instagram and all that. And one more announcement, I will be releasing a concert album from the New Year's Eve show I did last year, Every Joke I Wrote in 2020. I'm editing it now. It's going to be very lo-fi. You know, it's recorded on Zoom, but it's fun. It's a whole hour of new jokes that I wrote in 2020 that I'll probably never do again because, well, never say never, but, you know, a lot 2020 was such a unique year. So I, I just want to put it out there as like a way to remember and, you know, connect to you guys since I haven't been able to tour. Um, and that's pretty much it for now. Don't forget, you can subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes and all of that. Um, I still can't announce the thing, but I can hint at it, I think. So the network hoo-ha-ha that I'm on will be um, announcing uh, some new... I, I don't know if I can say what it is, but basically they're creating a new venture that will be fun and hopefully get this pod to more audiences. So I'm excited about that. And that's all for now. So yeah, if you guys want to join my OnlyFans, I am releasing some more feature videos. These are like essays I've spent a little bit more time writing, um, sort of similar to the Dear White Friends 
essay on Cracked from 2016. Uh, keep in mind, I do not write that title, but it is what it was called. And, and um, I'll be doing more of those like sort of video versions of that on my OnlyFans, onlyfans.com slash Teresa Lee. Um, and if you are curious, never join and are, you know, maybe like fearful. I don't know why you'd be, but sometimes signing up for new things is fearful. You can email me, tell me anything, pod at gmail.com. Tell me you're a confidant and you want a free trial. I'll give you a free month and you can check it out and then you can decide if you want to continue or not. You won't be charged automatically. You can always write me at Larissa T on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. All right. Goodbye. You can tell her. You can tell her. Father Longlegs, you know me, dot Daddy T. This is You Can Tell Me Anything. Um, this is a podcast where I have comedians confess something they've never told anyone or that they want to get off their chest, or if it has anything to do with the singularity, it's really quite opened up. Um, but today I'm really excited because we have a confidant on the show. Um, this is a super confidant, actually. Um, she's been a longtime supporter of the pod, and we've talked a lot about. Um, some of the topics like trauma therapy and neuroscience and she knows a lot more about it than I do I kind of just bullshit my way so I was like you should come on and we can talk about this so that is what she is doing so please give it up for Julia what's up hey (laughs) how's it going I'm so excited to like talk to you because I know we've interacted a lot online and you're um you're very uh supportive of the podcast so it's really cool to be able to talk to you as a guest it, I'm. I don't know how to express how excited I am to be here, um, especially because of what we're talking about. Like, this is what I want to devote the rest of my life and studies to. So, like, I'm pretty, pretty jazzed. Yeah, it's so cool. So you you are uh, majoring or doing research psychology and specifically a, a lot regarding like sort of body trauma and you know the stuff that I, I mean. I feel like I don't have the right terms for it, but stuff that we've talked about in this podcast in terms of like more holistic view of mental health. So I think it's really cool that you're studying that. Um, do you want, okay, let's start with a good confession. Cause I know we have a lot to get to regarding the, your studies and all this. So I don't want to like get too ahead. Um, so Julia, you know, cause you listen to the pod. I like to start with a good confession. Is there something good you'd like to confess? Um, I was thinking about this while you were doing the intro, and I actually do think I have something. Um, recently, my my girlfriend and I have decided to uh, put an offer in for a house. Wow! So, congratulations! Oh my gosh, that's so cool. That's huge. That's um, yeah, that is really good confession. And um, I feel like it's interesting because I feel like so many. At the beginning of quarantine, um, there was a lot of like waiting, like, okay, oh, we'll start life again after. But now, I mean, it's been so long that I think we're at that point where people are starting up again. And I have like a lot of friends who are starting like hitting such big milestones, like buying house or having babies or getting married during it. Because- I think I feel like it has something to do with like the pandemic too, because it's just like, all right, it's time to take that next step kind of a thing. Yeah. Like, especially with like buying a house or whatever, because I know that. I have only seen my girlfriend like a few times in the past year and mm. that's been pretty hard. So we're just like, you know, we, you, you want to just move in. Yeah. <laughs> like, so that's, yeah. 
and that's on taking uh, control of your life and making changes, which I'm all for. That's awesome. Um, well, good luck with, I don't know how putting an offer happens or what goes next, but good luck with that, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, so we, you know that we, this is inspired by therapy because um, I started going late and you, you obviously study this um, in school. Um, but what is your like personal relationship with therapy? Um, like what's your experience in terms of like, do you go? Have you been? Or like, you know, is it? Yeah, you know, you know what I'm asking. Oh, but what's your I personal relationship with in terms of like go uh, mental health and going to like therapy and that sort of thing? I go weekly and I do not <laughs> plan on that ending anytime soon or maybe not even in my life it's <laughs> like it's just something that kind of keeps me centered and keeps me going I honestly wish I would have started a lot earlier in my life because looking back on things I had a lot of um depression and anxiety mm. as like a really young kid but uh I was so high functioning like in school and everything like getting all A's and stuff that like nobody picked up on it and I just thought it was normal because it was it's what I was used to you know yeah um that's really interesting I feel like that um that's similar to my experience and being from the Bay Area I think it's similar to a lot of people from there as well but there's a sense like it's almost like so embedded in the stigma of depression already like we talk about like destigmatizing it, but in the way that we don't even think about diagnosing children with anxiety or depression when they're doing well, because from the get-go, you're kind of saying that in order to have it, you have to be doing so poorly or like at rock bottom, which is like, how do you destigmatize something that's to begin with, you're only looking in for people who are already doing poorly, instead of going like anyone can have it, including successful people and leaders. So it's really interesting to like have that uh, hindsight when you grow up and go like, why, like, did I fly under the radar when there are signs, you know? Yeah. And it's kind of a double-edged sword too, because like my anxiety is part of the reason why I was doing well as Uh far as society goes, because I was so terrified of like doing anything wrong or making a mistake that I was incredibly meticulous and paid very careful attention and like studied all the time because I felt like if I didn't get an A uh that I was a failure at life so that I have that experience too because I feel like uh like I didn't get diagnosed with ADHD until I was older but a lot of like what you're saying like the um sort of success or the like hyperactive studying came from you know the 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 times when I was like really trying to please or really trying to compensate for not understanding things and that can be seen if you're like trying to follow the rules as like oh very hard worker or like you know smart or whatever when in reality it's not that you're not smart it's that you know personally how much effort is required to actually get to where you want to go and you know that it's like not because you don't understand it it has to do with more of the attention and all the other stuff. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Um, I also think that like, there's some like pressures that can make that worse if people don't pick up on the fact that it's like ADHD or anxiety mm-hmm. or whatever it is, because then you get praised for doing well and you're yes. like, Oh my God. Okay. I'm a functional human. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. That's exactly it. Cause there's also with um, when you're like low in certain, like, I don't know if, serotonin whatever I don't know what the chemicals are but like you know when you're depressed or anxious you are seeking hit of what you're missing so when you get that from validation 
you maybe think like, oh, the way to get this is to like work harder and do better instead of like, let me heal like the part of me that can feel like enough and then do well because I want to not to please others. Yeah, definitely. Um, because it's just like, oh, that's what it's like to feel okay. How do I do that again? <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. That's so interesting. And it's cool that we're talking about therapy because I didn't really, I haven't actually, I don't think I've talked about this on the pod, but you know, when I first started going, there was a lot of stuff that I feel like I was like untangling in my brain um, that I had felt for so long that I didn't even think was something that you could solve. I just thought like this is just a personality trait. And one of those was this idea that I always wanted to feel like I could get extra credit. And I always thought that was like a good thing. You know, there's nothing wrong with extra credit, but also I never thought like, why not just get the good grade and study the thing and that's it. Like, and then it real, I realized it was because I was always afraid that at any point the rug would get pulled and that, you know, I might lose everything I worked for. So I could kind of save a little in the bank by asking for extra credit for a rainy day. And that's, I guess, in a way how I felt about like relationships uh, for a long time. I didn't make that connection until I started going to therapy that if I felt things were good, I wanted to get extra good, you know, goodwill so that when things were rocky that I could like be like, remember that gift I bought you? Like, that'll be another day that you won't break up with me or whatever, which is not how relationships should work. Um, but that's kind of how I viewed them for a long time. I'm very similar. I'm a huge people pleaser. Like, my beginning relationships pretty much had nothing to do with me. Um, <laughs> it was just, oh, this makes this person happy. Or, oh, I'm taking care of them in this way. That means it's good. They're happy. It's good. <laughs> yeah. And then in a way, it kind of it shoots yourself in the foot because then what you're seeking, and I think this is subconscious because I wasn't aware of this, but, like, you're seeking someone to see you and accept you and so you're doing all this for them so they feel accepted so that they'll accept you but in doing that you're hiding who you are so then you get into this place where like you're like I'm ready to be loved and then like you've created not like in a trickster way but you've kind of hidden parts of yourself that you feel like are like quote-unquote flawed and so it's like it makes it really hard for someone to accept you if you can't show them who you are um which is I think took a lot of years of therapy for me to learn but <laughs> Um, I yeah. mean, I'm right there with you. Yeah, years. <laughs> um, but yeah, but I, I do love like how far uh, I've come in specifically doing trauma therapy because I think talk therapy was really nice to be able to just feel comfortable exploring these ideas. And honestly, it wasn't until I started EMDR that I felt like an exponential growth, like to the point where it wasn't just like, oh, I can actually talk through problems to a point where I felt like my brain almost like rearranging and learning new patterns to actually get out of the dark place. Um, so yeah, I think that's where we started talking on Instagram was about like somatic therapy. Um, cause I was talking about EMDR. So yeah, I'd love to hear about how you got into your studies. I mean, did you like, clearly you were interested in it before you got into it, were you sort of like learning about it through school and then just gradually specialize or how did you come to want to specialize in this? Well, a mix of that and also personal experience. Um, because obviously I've been through a lot of therapy and there's mm. a lot of stuff that's messed up in my brain. Mm. Um, but I feel like that's how a lot of uh, psych majors are, to be mm. honest. Um, they're just like, oh, my brain's messed up. How do I understand it better? <laughs> <laughs> that's like a great way to, I mean, well, I'll say that I don't think thinking about it as messed up is, I say that too. And I know, I know you didn't mean it like that, but I'm trying to like reframe my thinking because it's, your brain's working, right? When you talk about dealing with trauma, it's it's doing the right thing, reacting to a situation that you might not have been aware of was not right, 
but your body was trying to get you out of it. So in a way, your brain wasn't messed up. It just didn't turn off the alarm. Um, but I think that's, that's interesting that so many, you say that so many psych majors go into it because they want to understand themselves. Because I don't think as a kid that's what I would have un- thought. You know, I would think that doctors go into it because they're, like, stable and want to, like, I don't know, give back or something. But <laughs> See, that's the interesting thing. I've gotten to a point where I don't trust um, therapists <laughs> that aren't, like, at least a little neurodivergent. Uh-huh. Like, okay, what is that big so- word? What does that mean? <laughs> Um, just like, I'm, I don't want to say normal because that's a lie. Um, but just like have some level of like depression or anxiety or some experience Uh with like some type of like mental illness, quote unquote. Mm. Um, because I, because people who don't have experience with that kind of stuff, I don't understand how they can be functional therapists because how could they possibly even begin to understand? Yeah, like, that's interesting. Unless they recovered. Yeah, but I think, I, I, yeah, we need a new word for normal. What, I catch myself wanting to say normal because there isn't a better word for it. And it's, it is like the quickest way because words are just a quick way to communicate. And I don't want to, I mean, I love to talk, but if I actually tried to explain every word, it would drive people insane. I already drive people insane. So I don't know what a better word for normal is, like the idea that like what's generally considered the, the standard, but we know is not like normal. I don't know what it would be. I've heard neurotypical. Um, neurotypical. Interesting. I almost feel like, like the way math looks at it as a median. I just want to start being like median. It's just the median. It's like it's really mo- most people don't actually lie right on the median. But if you're close to it, you can kind of get away with cons- being considered normal. But. <laughs> it's it's so interesting though because it's like it's a spectrum but it goes off in so many different directions. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the reality of anything outside of the point that you're considering normal is going to be a or abnormal even if it's 1 degree off. So, that doesn't quite like those words don't quite capture it, right? Like someone who's 10 degrees off versus 1 degree off, they're both considered abnormal. Yet colloquially we probably wouldn't call that person crazy like not a word you should use but you know the way people like like that person's crazy that person's fine but if you actually broke it down neither of them are 100 percent quote-unquote normal so then really there is a line in our heads where we draw the line and and that's different for, for person to person and that's where i'm interested in like that is really where you get into the relativity of it like there really isn't a normal if you can't look at someone and know for a fact that you guys both agree where the line is and i don't think people agree where the line is <laughs> well it's also interesting because it's also a cultural phenomenon mm. like people who are diagnosed with certain disorders say in the united states um are actually it, it has to do with the level of being able to function in society which ah. is also not right on a, at a certain degree because yeah. to be able to function in the America that we live in today is to have a lot of sociopathic tendencies. Yeah, in order to succeed, you literally have to be like not empathetic. <laughs> right, oh. and, and it's like to be very indi- individualistic and not care about like the rights of others because yeah. that's how you climb your way to the top, quote unquote. And I don't think that's right, but that's how you function in society. Mm. And there have actually been a lot of studies on that, um, that uh, 
serial killers share a lot oh, of the no. same personality traits as like large business moguls so oh, i believe that well my yeah what do you think okay so because we know that there is rampant narcissism and whatever you want to call it sociopathy but do you think it's because a lot of it was unchecked and they became the rule makers or do you think there's like an evolutionary not not in that it's good like i'm not like this is all not in a non-binary not judgmental way but like do you think there's a tendency to go there and that's why that happened and we have to push against it because i almost feel like to me it's so arbitrary i almost feel like if the majority of people were empathetic it would be the empathetic people making the rules and i feel that for so long it was just unchecked but I'm curious, because you spend more time with this, like, why do you think we evolved to this point where so much of, like, the systems and institutions are run by, you know, traditionally non, um, not good for the community traits or people who are more individualistic or willing to put themselves before others? I think it has to do with the different personality traits and the dy dynamics, because it is a little bit of, like, nature, nurture, um, like go between, but I feel like a little bit of authoritarianism pushing people toward like, you know, the ruling class or whatever. Um, if you look at the difference between say a narcissist sociopath mm -hmm. and someone who's highly empathetic, who's more willing to be understanding and bent over. Mm. That's true. It's interesting because those are both sides. Like we talk about spectrum, probably I'd be more willing to be trapped in a room with an empathetic person than a sociopath. But both of those are not the, as you call like the, the what we're striving for, because they're both imbalanced, right? I think if you're if we're truly talking about balance, not norm, but set, like being centered in your in your own personality and safety and you know security, I think you have to be able to provide safety for yourself in a way that doesn't take away from others um so someone who's willing to bend over backwards to save others at their own peril is not providing safety for themselves and so i would argue that's not actually helpful for the society because let's say that empathetic person has a lot of skills to save other people who need resources below them if they're more willing to save like a narcissistic person because they're being manipulated that's not good for society so to me, those are kind of like, they're not equally harmful in that like probably one is not a serial killer, but they're in the long run to me like equally harmful patterns for society's progress. And I think, I think that reflects on one of the biggest issues in society is that a lot of people who are caring and highly empathetic don't have very good boundaries. Yeah, and I think some of that does come out of trauma because I found that you can learn that and I gotten better at boundaries and then as I get better at them I now when I get triggered I can tell it's a trigger whereas before I was just constantly thinking that's how I had to be but because I know I'm being triggered I still can't get it like I'm like oh it's not I haven't solved it yet I don't know if that makes sense I guess I should try to explain for people who don't understand what I'm talking about like for example I used to feel really more like codependent tendencies because I would get abandonment um uh what do you call it abandonment trigger or abandonment issues from childhood so my reaction would be, you know, wanting to please the person I was with so that they wouldn't want to abandon me, which is not good because I should just be myself and they should want to be with me for me. And also, in a way, it's also violating their boundaries if I'm trying to, like, quote unquote, like trick them to be with me, which isn't how I saw it. But I think you could kind of say it that way. So 
then now I know that's not good. So I set boundaries. So if I'm like, oh, I actually, you know, want to be alone tonight. I'll still have the feeling, though, where I know I want to be alone. So I'm like, because I want to work on boundaries, I'm going to do that. But then when I am alone and it's like a night that I could be hanging out with my partner, I will sometimes go into the trigger mode where I'm like, oh, I better call him because what if he think what if the, because of this, he never talks to me again. And that's the work because that's when I communicate and say, OK, I'm having this reaction. Don't come over, but I'm going to cry at you on the phone. <laughs> but it's like. That is when I realized, oh, I know what I'm supposed to do, but it's physically still not happening. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's the interesting thing about it is that um, I think you being able to identify that shows a lot of growth, um, especially because you're able to identify that in your body. You can feel that like you're having this reaction despite knowing that maybe like logically, so to speak, you know where it's coming from and it's mm -hmm. not coming from where you're reacting. Um, and I think that is a huge step for a lot of people, especially people with like trauma, because there's often a dissociative element mm -hmm. um, that comes because it's, it's adaptive. Like if you're not safe in a relationship or a situation or an environment, you can't live there. And you know that, mm -hmm. but if it's like a situation where you are exposed to that day after day or mm -hmm. like chronically, you have to, you have to dissociate from, because that's yeah. the only way you can be safe. Yeah. That's interesting. It, you're kind of talking about living in two realities. I love to talk about Schrodinger's cat in a way that I don't think was what Schrodinger meant, but sort of because <laughs> it's this idea that you're like, either you're in love with me or you're abusive. And those two cannot both exist, but depending on the day they can, but they can't, you know, the reality is they can't like, there should not be no abuse in love. But, um, the reality is if you never grew up with the right model and if you are alive, then technically speaking, like, you're not at the point where you're not at the edge yet, but you do know your body knows that like, if you keep going, this will be bad for you, but you don't know where the line is. So I think that's where it gets tricky is like actually figuring out that like, it's not singular. Like that's why I keep talking about the non-binary. I, I don't know if that's the right, we need better terms for this. I don't think there's enough um, vocabulary. Maybe you'll be the one <laughs> when you uh, do your research papers to figure it out. But so the idea that it's not black and white, right? Like when you hear abusive relationship, that sounds bad. So people say like, why don't you get out? But the fact that like, you're not dead now, it's like in your mind, you're like, well, is it when people say it's bad, they're like, it's bad because the subtext is like, it's you'll die. You know, that's sort of uh, the subtext of everything. Like, am I safe? Am I going to live or die? And the fact that you're alive, then you tell yourself, well, then I might be wrong because I'm alive. And if this was going to kill me, it would have by now instead of thinking there's actually a version where your life is like you're alive, but it's a lot worse versus you're alive and it's a lot better. And there's a spectrum. And so if you're on the edge where you don't understand that you have all this room above you to grow, you might think, well, I might be at the top of what I can do. Like maybe I'll get in another relationship and it'll be even more abusive and it'll be worse, but I'll still be alive. So I think that's where the tricky, um, conversations come in because you know on paper when you're studying this you can't really get into the nuance of every relationship right you can only look at patterns and so I think people read these things like myself included you know I, I read the books and 
watched the movies and I've been like, oh, okay, well, like, I'll know when I'm in a bad situation. But then when you are in it, it doesn't feel that way because there's so much that's not written about. Yeah, that's that's definitely true. And there's also a huge level of manipulation on the part of the abuser because they, they'll capitalize on any little fear uh, mm. that you might have and play that up to the extreme. Like, if you feel that maybe you're in a bit of a precarious job situation, so if you got mm. out of the relationship, you're not sure where you'd go, they'd be like, oh, you'll never survive without me. Like, yeah. and then there's the interest, even more interesting aspect is that sometimes if a, if a, an abusive partner thinks their partner is going to leave them, they'll all of a sudden be very, very nice huh. and very, and then, and they'll be like, oh, maybe they're better. Maybe we can make this work. And then they'll just fall deeper in. Yeah. So there's a lot of like give and take as far as that goes as well. Yeah. I've been in that situation and it was very deeply confusing and I never thought about it in the terms of like brain patterns and um, like manipulation till now, but not only is it confusing because it makes you want to come back, but also because you're teaching your brain that if you wait long enough, you'll have the satisfaction. So the next time it's really bad, you almost have to go wor worse because you're like, oh, I remember the last time it was bad. And just when I hit my breaking point, it got good. You taught your brain to kind of like make things worse not on purpose but you feel like the satisfaction is coming that yeah i'm i'm interested what they because so i've heard that narcissism and all the like sort of cluster b sociopathy um personality disorders are no longer considered legitimate according to like the textbook so what what did they teach in school now or is it still kind of is it still up for debate but that's just like what the main main hold is because the narcissists are in charge <laughs> I feel like we're edging away from the terms psychopath and sociopath because they've been so overused in the media. Mm. Um, they are still technically like people can have sociopathic tendencies or psychopathic tendencies and they are still like a defined, I, I guess, disorder. Um, but a lot of it is misunderstood in the media so we try yeah. to um it's glamorized almost like yeah in a way yeah. that like heroes are uh a lot of tv heroes are narcissists but the kind you like but they're also tv it's tv it's different it's not i don't know well that's that's the <laughs> tricky thing about it is that narcissists are generally at, at least at first or at least at first glance they're very very likable people yeah well, because they play just the mask, which mm -hmm. is the part that you like everybody in a way wears a mask at some point, but not not that deeply, because when you meet someone for the first time, you're not immediately like, I don't know, like even a basic thing. You're not like just farting in front of them, but it's like there's nothing wrong with farting. Like, you know what I mean? Like when you're around people you trust, it's like you probably there's a politeness to not doing it, but you know, it won't ruin the friendship. But if you met someone for the first time and that's what you did, it'd be strange, like it's not like they would hate you, but it'd just be strange. So in that way, we all kind of have like this like social norm mask we wear. But I think narcissists do it even more to a point where they, they very much don't take it off. And then when they do take it off, it's like they've hidden so much that it just becomes really dark because it like all comes out. Well, that's the interesting thing that you bring up because you bring up hiding um, their like true personality because a lot a lot of people who are either narcissists or have narcissistic um, tendencies 
are just deeply, deeply insecure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and it's sad, but at the same time, um, among all of the mental disorders or illnesses, narcissists are the least likely to seek therapy. Yeah. It's so tough because I mean, I've come a long way too of how, like in my forgiving journey, because I would say probably when I wasn't healed it was a lot of anger and wanting to be like why would like like wanting to project their intentions like because someone who does so many bad things in my head I'm like they must be doing it to hurt like or they don't have the empathy but if they don't have the empathy they it sounds weird to say but they don't know that it hurts even though it doesn't excuse it but then I think like well what's the solution it's not just to erase these people because they're hurting too but there is I think there is a path forward to protect people by educating right like I think if everyone was aware of these red flags and learned earlier on like especially empathetic people or people with trauma who are susceptible to manipulation they would have an easier time navigating this and they might not be hurt which also wouldn't enable the narcissist pattern because the narcissists also build over time learning that if they keep hurting they'll get supply and so if it doesn't work they might have to like adapt they might evolve I don't know like I mean that sounds crazy because I'm like I'm talking about like literally like evolving our brains but we've done it before as humans which is wild to me that we think we're done evolving well it's interesting that you say evolving our brains because um it's been it's been shown that we don't have to even go as far as evolution to change like the um <laughs> neuropathways in our brain for example like exposure to chronic stress, like mm. childhood neglect and stuff, that changes the neural pathways and that changes the way your body responds to um, basic stimuli. But on the flip side, there are certain therapies that don't always make sense as to why they work, but they work because they play to those neural pathways and help reroute mm. the thought processes without necessarily conscious awareness. Like, like, you know, you were, you had yeah. been talking to me about like EMDR. It doesn't necessarily make sense as why like having your eyes move around <laughs> while like thinking about or talking about like traumatic experiences works, but it does yeah. because I wanna, it engages those neural pathways. I, I want to get into, the, okay, this is where I want to get more into it. Let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about EMDR and more about um, your research and, and get to your confession. Okay, we're back. Um, I'm so excited to talk about this because this is literally like been like dying to talk about this with you. So we did talk about EMDR. I have thought a lot about why it works and I none of my theories are rooted in research at all, but you're researching this. So I'm excited to in the very least test my theories or be told why they're dumb. Um, because we're told that I was kind of told like EMDR has to do with rapid eye movement, which similar to when you're dreaming, you process emotions and since I've done EMDR a lot of my dreams have become more vivid in a way where I start remembering them they're almost like the Marvel Cinematic Universe they're all kind of connected now there's times when I remember a dream and it's not just a random dream it's like I'll be back in the exact place like a m memory palace almost and it just it's not a place I've ever been but it's a place that exists in my dream I think this is my theory I don't think this this is yet to be proven and there's so many unknowns, but a lot of people talk about astral projection. I'm not, I don't not believe in it, but to me, it sounds a lot like what I feel when I'm dreaming and it's the places stay the same. 
like the astral plane people talk about i don't tr personally right now my body doesn't believe that i'm like going into outer space i just think it's in my brain and it's my way of processing but it sounds really similar to astral projection so my theory is that it's just your brain is sorting out the patterns in your sleep and if you have trauma it kind of stopped doing that and emdr kind of forces you to do that while you're awake and safe because you know you're in a therapist's office or whatever and so your body actually can do that and once you start to feel safe again you kind of it's like revving up a rusty engine you just kind of like practice over and over and then it starts doing it on its own again and then you kind of catch up but <laughs> what is the reality like what you're you've been studying this what is like something people don't really know about this and like how, how it's also new like how does it sort of like work like how do you explain this in a way that's not as stupid as me <laughs> i don't i don't think that's stupid it, it, you're talking a lot about processing and that's that's really what it comes down to um i think a lot of i think one of the things that a lot of people might not completely understand is how much we hold trauma in our bodies hmm. like what do you mean Exposure to trauma, whether it be abuse, um, even like neglect, emotional mm. neglect is traumatic for a kid because that is unsafe. It's traumatic for an adult. Yeah. Um, uh, but like any experience to trauma will activate your sympathetic nervous system, mm. which um, brings about like the adrenaline and the fight, flight or freeze. And when it comes to things like neglect or like emotional abuse or even physical abuse sometimes, a lot of the time our reaction is to freeze hmm. because mm -hmm. we have to stop doing whatever we're doing, even if it's not wrong, because that will please the other person or that will get us out of the situation somehow. Um, but there's been... A, a pattern in society of not expressing emotions completely. Mm. Um, it's not been it considered appropriate um, to express intense emotions, especially as a kid, uh, which has gotten us into a place where we don't, we never really fully process the trauma because we don't feel like that's allowed. So then, like you said, hmm. it just kind of stops. The processing stops. And so then each subsequent trauma just keeps building and building and building because we never get to that place of the full processing of the event. And if, and if the trauma keeps happening, we can never get to that place because, like you said, in therapy, you have to be in a place where you feel safe and you have to allow yourself to feel safe. Yeah, wow. So one of the things that like EMDR and therapies like that do is they take advantage of like the rapid eye movement. It's similar in a way to processing the events, because if you look at animals, for example, um, they can be subjected to some pretty traumatic stuff, but you rarely see signs of PTSD. Like a lion can be hunting a gazelle and their fight, flight, or freeze is going nuts trying to get them out of that situation. Um, some animals will play dead and that would be like the freeze response we huh. see in humans, yeah. but they still don't end up traumatized. But one of the things that's been discovered is well, that- how do we know once that? 
or I mean, I, I, I believe you because I know you studied, but I'm just curious, like, what is that something people have studied to show that there's ways to measure they're not traumatized? I think it has to do with the way they interact um, with both the environment and other creatures in, mm. in like the future because they don't give up and they aren't hyper vigilant like a lot of people with trauma are. There's no gazelles um. going to open mics doing comedy. <laughs> No, I mean, process. you see it, you see a moose here and there, but like that's just because of their antlers. Um but um but they shake. Uh-huh. Oh yes. After, oh, I want to talk. Yeah, this is the girl. You told me I think after, you were the one who told me about this. After a very traumatic event, once they are safe, they'll shake because that helps them fully get like express the energy uh, that was activated by the sympathetic nervous system as a result of the trauma instead of holding it in their body. It's when oh. we hold it in our bodies that we start to run into issues. Wow. And I, I think that's part of the reason why EMDR does work because it involves the rapid movement. Oh, even though it's just your eye. That's so interesting. Well, if you think about it, like that's a sign of hypervigilance, like looking around a lot or being very alert, uh, you look around. Uh, and it relates also to a different modality of trauma therapy, which is somatic experiencing, which they actually do, um, I guess, capitalize on the body's shaking or touch because a lot of times uh, victims of trauma will respond very strongly to touch, mm. but it's important to have that safe touch that is okay where you won't like jump out of your skin, you know? Mm. How does somatic therapy work? Um, like I said, it's very, it's similar to EMDR. Like, do you go into um, but... a trance? It, it, I guess it really depends on the situation, but a lot of the time it has more to do with like finding healthy ways to feel your body hmm. okay. because one of the things is that weird i brought this up earlier with the dissociation we tend to be very detached from our bodies um especially with trauma and it's a lot about noticing your nervous system's reactions mm -hmm. to different things and also what you feel in your body. So like, even though this isn't somatic experiencing, a very easy exercise to do to figure out if something's um, like wrong is what do I feel in my body right now? My therapist asks me that <laughs> all the time because I'll just be going off on this anxiety tangent. She'll be like, okay, Julia, where do you feel that? Hmm. And I'll have to take a minute to stop and actually ground myself in my body instead of going off on those anxious tirades and be like, oh, my chest feels tight. I must be anxious. That means I'm anxious about something. But with somatic experiencing, even if you are anxious about something, that might not go away. But what you can do is you can learn to change your body's reaction to that, which how over time helps lower the threshold for your anxiety and, and helps you be able to be better in control. Because then I'll just do some deep breathing, my chest will loosen up, 
And all of a sudden, like the things I was so afraid of, yeah, they're still making me nervous and anxious, but it's not to the point of I am like exploding. Yeah, that's so interesting. The shaking thing. Okay, I have a couple of things. This is like, I love this because it's sort of like you're speaking to a lot of things I felt instinctively, but like have never, you know, I've never studied any of this. I majored in screenwriting which is, was dumb. Um, <laughs> but my, my dog shakes a lot. Like he'll, not a lot. He'll do it like when we're on a walk, if he sees a big dog and he's like, rah, 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 and then when we walk away, he shakes. So that makes sense. And I was trying to get him, I was working with a trainer because he's a rescue and she was like, well, you know, if he gets a lot, if he gets nervous a lot, you can maybe even teach him to shake. And, and I was like, oh, that's a good idea. I'm going to try to do that. But I don't think he's very conscious of it because I've been trying to teach him shake, like shake, shake to, uh, for like months and I, I finally was like I think I'm just gonna give up because I would reward him when he did it and I would label it the same way I've taught him all the other tricks but I think he doesn't know he's doing it so when I have tried to be like shake shake he'll almost stop like I've tried to catch him when I know he's about to do it and he'll stop shaking and look at me like huh and then he won't do it and I'm like ah, I just stopped the process and then when he does shake and I reward him, he has no idea why. So I think it's like almost subconscious that he's doing it. And I'm like, I don't, it's cool. They know how to do this, but I it's like, wow, he's not even something he can actually do on his own. Uh, well, instinctively, I believe that we know how to do it too. We've just been suppressing stuff mm. like that for so long that we are just so out of tune with our body. It's like, well, think so of people how- get chills. We're like, Oh, I got chills. Yeah, think of all of the ways we suppress our bodily, like, emotions. Like, if we, well, I mean, the obvious one is when people are just like, oh, tough people don't cry, or something like that. But, like, even more insidious is, like, people just controlling, trying to control how they look um, Mm. physically, and trying to control every single aspect of their body. Like, of course, we're going to try to control the emotional reactions. That's not what we're expecting or what we're used to. Um, So we, we get tuned out of those instincts that would naturally like help us move through like the processing of uh, trauma or intense emotions because they aren't quote unquote societally appropriate. Yeah, everything you're saying is so interesting and I am just so excited to talk about it. So let's, I want to get to your confession. I know we've gone longer than we usually do, but it's also because I'm sure this is going to tie into what we're going to talk about. But Julia, is there anything you want to confess? Is there something you want to tell me? I was originally a music therapy major. Whoa. And I switched because I... How do I put this? I switched because I just wanted to research. Oh, and they said, and I was talking to the music therapy professor at my old college. And I was like, yeah, when do we get into the um, figuring out why this works Ah. or like different practices? And she's like, oh, no, we don't do like any diagnosis or anything. And I just kind of looked at her. I was like, cool and I submitted my like change to a psych major like that day (laughs) wow yeah I mean okay that's so interesting because you would think the front line of people studying to be musical therapists could teach you a lot about how it works while they're learning right because it's like the new generation you have new experiences but the way we section off um healthcare like you 
yeah, therapists can't diagnose, like, and then even stuff like we were talking about trauma, like if you have chronic pain or like I have psoriasis, you have to go to a dermatologist, even though I'm like, this is connected to my trauma. And they're just like, okay, cool, go see a psychiatrist. And I'm like, but can't you take the data from me? And like, it could actually help someone else. Like, so it sucks that that you have to pick a lane, but I do think whatever you study is going to feed into practice, but um, that's that's what I'm hoping. I just it, it it bugged me that like basically it seemed like music therapy was learning the techniques and where to apply them, and then that seemed like it was it. And yeah. I was just like, but where's the science? I need the science. <laughs> yeah, wow. Because I wouldn't have expected that. I would have thought it would be way more. Um, like what's the word interdisciplinary because you're kind of combining some things are you a musician yes kind of i don't know sure <laughs> well, what made you pick music therapy well i've i've been singing since i was like a very small child my mom was an opera singer in college oh wow um so i've been singing pretty much my whole life and i just i i really love music and i was like oh i can i can use what i love to help people and then I was just like, well, this is not what I wanted. Huh? I wanted to help help people, not just be told what to do. do is you... kind of what it felt like. Uh, well, I love the intention, and that just sucks because of the system. But I, I think your intentions are right. And I'm glad you found the right place to go. But do you uh, – I'm curious about this because I have, like, thoughts about how music and dance help too. Do you, like, sing a lot to yourself, like, just on your own? Like yes. What? Okay. <laughs> yes, I, I do too. Well, and I, I mean, obviously, especially in the shower. Yes, I feel but like not just to sound for like processing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, like yeah, there is the element of it just fun to blast like Broadway musicals and sing. But I do sometimes find myself like definitely more in quarantine. I used to love dancing, and I would still go out dancing when we were allowed out. But in quarantine, you would think like. Well, just if you're not going to go out dancing, you don't, there's no reason to like twerk in front of a mirror for an hour. But <laughs> um, when I get really upset, sometimes I will like just suddenly get up and start dancing. And it's the weirdest thing. And now I, that I understand my body more, I just almost like actively before I even get to that low point, start dancing. But during quarantine, when I had some of my worst breakdowns, I was like fetal position on the floor crying. And then I would just get up, no music and just start to work. <laughs> And then I started doing it in a way that it made me feel happy. And I think it's like that shaking that we're talking about. My body was like, hey, hey, Teresa, like you got to just let this out. And in the past, I might be able to like, let's go out dancing and like, you know, be like, I'm fun. When really I'm like, I got to get it out. And at home, it's like, well, you're not going out. So you better get in front of the mirror and dance for an hour until you feel better. So I that's why I asked about the singing, because I think um, subconsciously, like your body probably does. I, like that's my theory like you probably sing to yourself to like process things or you know I don't yeah know. and it's it's also like a comfort too because it's like you said it's that physical motion like mm -hmm. there's even there's dance therapy mm. um and obviously like it's different for everyone but there are a lot a lot of professional athletes mm. that that's where they get their stress out yeah true it's interesting that it's we even have to call it dance therapy or music therapy because when you think about it dance is therapy mm -hmm. like <laughs> like music just in many ways if I you listen to what's on the radio it's like that is somebody's way of expression i think things that get us out of our own head 
can be good forms of therapy, like in general, because we so often neglect and don't pay attention to our body that mm. like when we do something like dance, like we're aware of like the movements we're making and um, yeah. And for singing, like you have to engage the vocal cords. So we actually have to be in our body huh. to do what we're doing. You have to be a one whole person. You can't be in that like Schrodinger's cat mode where you're like, we have to be here's here's the best part we have to be in the present moment instead yes. of back where the trauma was yeah oh that's a great way to put it and in a way i feel like sometimes when i hear like really connect to like film and art and music like i feel the per artist trauma but in a way where i also feel they got it out like if that makes sense like when I used to say this, people made fun of me in college because they're like, I, I think I was a little bit pr prude and I didn't realize it maybe was like a had sexual innuendo. But I was always like when I was dancing, I'm like, I need to get it out. And then people are like, you know, that sounds like a masturbation thing. I'm like, what? But that's the feeling. I was always like, there's something I like can't like I just need to get it out. And now um, that I've done EMDR, I'm like, oh, literally, it was the feeling like that I was like choking or whatever. I was like trying to get something, an energy out. And once you do make something you feel represents it, it kind of gets to live there in a nice little like, like neat bow where it's like, there it is. I, it's not bad. It's part of me, but it's no longer inside, you know? It's no longer like forcing you back into the trauma and like taking control of the yeah. nervous system. I did art therapy. I don't know if I've talked about this on the podcast. <laughs> you might know more than I do. Um, I did it right after my brother died and I was seeking a therapist and I was really like, I had gone to a couple before that weren't the right fit. And then I started seeing, trying to find new ones. I couldn't find them. And then I like, was like, let me try, try something like fun, like art therapy. And she was like, she specialized with children and teenagers, which is perfect for me because I didn't go as a kid. So I think her knowing, I think my brain was stuck in like, kind of like underdeveloped emotionally so we just like drew with like markers and stuff it was funny because anytime I was in the waiting room it was always kids coming out of there but um it helped a lot because I got to just draw stuff and it's not just the getting out of my brain but the pattern like there was a feeling that I was working on something because I started drawing things where I would like come back to it the next week and like add more to it so I really started feeling like visualizing my progress of you know I'm talking but also I'm building something so I can watch time go by and when you talk about the present and trauma like sometimes you don't feel time that's it's interesting that you bring that up because that is a lot of the time how they do incorporate some forms of therapy for kids it's because if you let kids just draw and like don't like say draw what you're feeling or just like draw what you feel like drawing a lot of the times they will draw things that indicate certain like issues that are going on mm. or something like that like even something as simple as a drawing of their family mm. and one of their parents being farther away from the rest of the group can indicate some issues with like the family dynamic that yeah. need to be addressed like it's very very subtle things like that that like art therapists like use to help kids um put words to what's going on and yeah. understand uh, how they're feeling about it and then validate those feelings yeah. and move forward from there it's so interesting that you say put words to it um because oh well okay there's two, one thing i want to two things i want to share one is my brother um 
when he he was about gonna you know he's in high school and he was a senior and gonna go to college but what he wanted to major in was uh linguistic kind of like research what you're talking about like linguistics as a way to um find patterns to like help people with depression and anxiety and i thought it was really cool i mean i feel like the fact that he was thinking that and that you're studying this, I do have a lot of hope for the next 10, 20 years. I imagine a lot of people are making those connections. But there's patterns in, you know, the way you talk and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And now that we type everything, you can probably run it in a robot and help a lot of people. Um, but I specifically caught on to the use of the word words because we as adults have used words to shorthand, like what we were talking about earlier communicate but the words don't actually all mean the same thing to us right we've just gotten comfortable with that like quote-unquote norm so i almost think the framing of like getting kids to use drawing so that we can understand it is us trying to understand them not like they actually organically can communicate like animals they if you just give them the tools they'll tell you how they feel but we're like yes but where did they touch you use this bear and they're just like I'm crying. I'm obviously sad. You know, like we have to use words because we lost the way like adults, adults lost the language. Like what if dance and music and art was the original language and we well, that's, dumbed that's it down? The thing. I think it was. Yeah. It, I mean, language hasn't always been a thing, but we get so disciplined. I definitely agree with what you're saying, because kids, if they. I bet I bet a kid if they experience like a traumatic event would um, I bet some of them have danced afterward. Mm -hmm. I, I bet they've moved their body. I bet they've started singing. You see a lot of these people go, oh, this is such an adorable reaction to like something. And this shows like the resilience of kids. It's like, <laughs> we could all be doing that. Yeah. Like that would be so much better. And people who are able to tap into that energy and release it in those creative ways are the people who show resilience to trauma. Yeah, that's because it, it's not I'm not saying like, again, I'm not saying words are bad. I think we do need shorthand in order to connect because, you know, it's going to take us a long time. If anytime you needed to buy a sandwich, you had to dance it out, like be like, how much do for the sandwich? Here's a leap. It's like, <laughs> but that is how animals are socially right? anxious. I, <laughs> it is. It is like how, in a way, animals communicate, though. They, like, dance around their food. But, yeah, I like words, okay? As a stand-up comedian, I am not shitting on words. But I do think we have closed off the part of, of ourselves that is able to communicate with body language. Because, you know, you, you get people who say, like, I'm fine. And you know they're not fine. And this is where jokes come from because everybody knows, right? You make that joke and everybody knows. But yet, we still do it and we take it at face value and it's like we know in this situation the body is saying more than the words so that's enough like but we're taught we have to listen to people's words right and i think that's the that's the interesting thing is because words aren't inherently bad and mm. they aren't a bad form of expression like for example you do comedy and that's a way that's a way to express your emotions and how you're feeling and i'm sure you feel a lot better like after a good set mm -hmm. um and a lot of people journal and people do like poetry and stuff like that it all gets it out it's just the way we communicate it as people a lot of the time is very robotic and if we demand a certain type of communication mm. from someone that's where it falls apart 
is because if like a child is trying to express themselves in a certain way and we say use your words mm. that might put them in a bit of a box because they're like i don't know how to convert this into words they like, haven't words learned don't... it yet yeah well also like maybe words don't encompass what they're feeling because a lot of people like if they're something is going to through something intense they're like i don't have words to describe how i feel like that is a phrase i hear so much and it's because yeah. words don't because emotions aren't just cognitive they're all-encompassing it's i have like a lot of um uh like hope in the future because i know nobody <laughs> i know a lot of people like say social media is toxic it, in ways it is but I don't think inherently it is I think it's toxic in that it's highlighting the toxic patterns we already have when I think about TikTok and how a lot of it is using memes and movement to communicate in a way that's in a pattern right like you take a meme and then quickly it gets literally like repeated and then oftentimes like transcoded you know with someone might take like i don't know there's what's one that's popular now like there's the uzi uzi wake up so people might take that sound clip and then do it to like their life and then they're like oh this is like i don't know i'm really bad at explaining this <laughs> oh i wish i was not such a millennial <laughs> where i'm you could tell these these words are hard for me because tiktok's not my first language um but you know what I mean? It'd be like, for example, if I like made a meme of, um, you know, like I spilled my coffee and I was like, oh, FML. And then <laughs> this really dates me. And then someone else said FML. But then they're like that moment when, you know, like, ah, you show up to class late. And then I'm like on horse Twitter. I'm like that moment when you fall off a horse. So we've suddenly transcoded a feeling to different situations. And I think uh, in the past we weren't as able to do this. I think the new generation of children is really good at this because of memes and TikTok uses movement. So we might laugh at kids dancing on TikTok, but they're actually maybe speaking that language we're talking about, that original language. Like, and the adults don't get it because we're like, why are they just like moving around? What's so cool about that? And they're all like, oh, movement. Like they're like communicating. It is, it is a different form of communication, but like, I, I think you might be, um, I think you might be right. It's probably more effective. And I mean, it, I don't have a TikTok personally, but it does go to show how much TikTok has accomplished for like a lot of people um, in Gen Z and other people as well. Uh, my favorite, of course, being when they uh, put aside a whole bunch of tickets to the Trump yes. rally and then no one showed up. <laughs> that was great. Yes, because <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. And also, I think like when we talk about comedy as a form of coping like maybe that is a language too like the old boomer generation might see that as like if you're being funny then it can't be serious or you can't be in stress but maybe you're so stressed you're using comedy and that's why it communicated so fast because everyone was able to get on board well also it's a safe avenue yeah. like i'm gonna like getting kind of dark here i uh, like when i'm not doing well i joke about like suicide and depression mm all the time mm -hmm. and it's like people are just like oh yeah haha, so funny i'm like oh if we only knew <laughs> or if they do know then they understand yeah. but then so it's that way of making that connection without somebody being like oh she's got to go to the hospital right now <laughs> yeah that's the yeah because that's what i was thinking i was like i think they do know but there is that like the mask of like 
especially with comedians like when people make jokes about killing themselves we're all like okay i know you actually have wanted to but in that moment it's like oh is it gonna be helpful if someone made a joke and i'm like call the cops like there's different of course there's different levels i'm not saying never check on your friends like you have to be discerning um for, as someone who is constantly surrounded by people and myself included uh who are depressed like it's just not unless the cops are gonna fix it like it's not helpful um but what we can do is like you say connect so like in that moment what i'm probably looking for is some form of validation and connection and i get that in the form of laughter so if i can make a joke and someone laughs that's actually really helpful for me as silly as it is like people might be like don't laugh at depression it's like well what's the alternate like i'm just gonna be depressed alone <laughs> like how about we all laugh together and then at the same time i'm working on it like trust trust i'm working on it but i'm also gonna joke about it <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think you're right. It is very circumstantial, but like I'm one of those people that if I'm talking about it, that means I'm actively not engaging in it. Yeah, yeah. It, it gets it outside of the body, and then you're just like, this is out here now. It's no longer like inside. I can put it away for a while. So like I'll talk about it and I'll joke about it. And part of the reason I joke about it is because I don't want to scare people. Because yeah. if like. I really get into the deep, intense thoughts, they might be nervous. But if, like, I make a joke, I can still release that energy. Mm -hmm. I, like, that negative energy with and get that validation and still, and not, like, cause anyone else harm. So I feel like in the mental illness, like, community, so to speak, we do kind of have that, like, more evolved language. Mm. And I think that's also why I um, only trust therapists that have had some experience, at least a little bit of experience with some kind of mental illness is because they know that language. Yeah, that's really <sighs> interesting. So I want to like, um, we're kind of nearing the end, but I there's so much that you we talked about before, like I know that you research a lot of this. Is there like sort of a highlight of something like that people aren't as aware of that's more, you know, cause this is kind of new this is kind of against the like old school, you know, very segmented belief of mental health. Is there anything you can kind of enlighten us in your studies or whether it's totally, I know some of this stuff, like it's not peer reviewed or whatever, but that you think is an interesting theory you want to share with us that you think can help people think of this in a different way? Well, we talked a lot about uh, the mind and the body and how disconnected we are. Um, I think a lot of the things that's that's been like, either disputed or a lot of people don't understand mm -hmm. is how much like chronic conditions relate to psychological trauma mm. because especially in this culture we have a huge disconnect we're like oh we treat the brain or yeah. we treat the body there's not like a go-between but yeah. there have been multiple studies that of, of different chronic illness illnesses and conditions like um high blood pressure fibromyalgia mm. heart disease rheumatoid arthritis mm. and uh, even cancer has been linked to some kind of psychological trauma what about, have you ever come across in your studies Ooh, there's an echo sorry have you ever come across in your studies um anything about vitiligo i i've talked about this on the pod but i know that it's not only caused by trauma but i have it and other people i know who have similar traumas have it and i started getting it around my scar in the last couple of years my heart surgery scar so i'm like oh come on like 
this has to do with trauma. But then everyone's like, interesting. Every health professional I talk to is like, interesting. Anyways, here's some cream. And I'm like, what is it? What are they saying in schools? Because like, <laughs> uh, that's like it's an autoimmune I, uh... condition that's mostly subjected to dermatologists, which is not who you would go to when you're depressed. But it is all that from the immune system, which is kind of affected when you go through trauma. That is, that is really interesting. I haven't looked up that in particular, but you brought up the immune system and autoimmune conditions are definitely in that realm because being in a constant state of fight mm. or flight suppresses the immune system. That's part of it because the oh. immune system is, um, I guess, boosted when you're in the rest and digest, so to speak, phase, okay. which is controlled by the parasympathetic nervous system. So when your sympathetic nervous system is constantly activating those hormones because you don't feel safe, so you know, so you have to be ready for action at any moment, like your immune system doesn't get any help. It's kind of like, like the adrenaline, right? Like how you get sick after shows. Um, yeah. Because... Yeah, it's almost like, yeah, I guess I'm trying to, I love using the house metaphor, but it's like, you're not, when it's storming, you're not gonna, like, it's not a good time to <laughs> start remodeling your garden or whatever, but uh, you probably wait for it to end. But if it never stops storming, then you're like, I guess it's just gonna get worse. Like, yeah, wow. I didn't even think about that. I, it makes well, me that, think a lot about artists. Also, oh, sorry. I was yeah, just that's like, also kind of like why a lot of like people who have a lot of anxiety end up with like stomach issues and stuff like mm. that is because again, digestion is part of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so oh. during the sympathetic nervous system, you don't, <laughs> it's, that's just shut down. Wow. That's wild. Cause it's, then I'm thinking about like being a comedian, getting on stage every night. Like if you don't treat your trauma, like you are constantly activating your fight or flight if you're getting nervous adrenaline and then you're just like getting sick all the time that's so interesting i've never like made that connection um wow i've a lot to think about well how would people who aren't studying this or maybe don't have as much access to like emdr is there anything people can do to stay grounded or connect that mind and body if they feel like they're disconnected like that you recommend well i mean First and foremost, if you do feel like you've had, like, oh, if you resonate with some of this and feel like you've had trauma and need to process it, I would definitely seek out a therapist of some kind because mm -hmm. they can really help you, like, develop that safe space. Um, but as far as grounding goes, uh, there are a lot of exercises that you can just Google that help you get back in your body. Um, like one of them I mentioned being the deep breathing. Um, even just like if you feel activated or tense or feel like something's not right, um, asking yourself, where do I feel this in my body or what am I feeling in my body right now and figure out what that is and then look around your situation, see what might be causing that or if it's something in your mind, be more present in the moment to be able to better assess that and see if that's something you can handle right now. Um, with dissociation, there are exercises such as the 54321 which is oh yeah i like that one yeah tell us about it. i don't know um, if i've talked about it on the pod yeah uh you name five things you can see mm -hmm. um four things you can hear three things you can touch two things you can smell and if possible one thing you can taste 
Uh -huh. because it gets you back into your body because it orients you in your situation by looking around like I'm here I'm present I'm not in the trauma and it also gets you into your body because you're like oh I feel my feet on the floor I didn't feel that before um, there have been moments I know in my therapy that my therapist would be like what do you feel in your feet right now and I realized that my <laughs> entire leg muscles are completely tense and I'm like well wow. <laughs> all right <laughs> Yeah, when I was a kid, my, my, when I was home, I mean, this could also just be bad circulation, but I feel like it hasn't happened as an adult. Like, my, when I was home, just like, you know, I don't wear shoes in the house because we're Asian. Like, my feet would just like get purple because it was cold or like it would feel cold, but the rest of my body was okay. And now I think about it, I'm like, probably my body was just like not circulating my blood. And I just like feel like my feet are purple. And my mom's like, like, we should turn on the heat, but what's going on? I can never understand it. I'm like, damn. That's a really good tip. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing. I, I, it's, I have a, like a final like a little. It's not. I don't know if this is a game, but I really wanted to talk about um, tropes from like misrepresentation of therapy and stuff because I've kind of brought this up before in the pod. But like how, in the '90s when I was growing up, there's just so much misrepresentation. So from you know a research psych major, I I want to just go through tropes and like sort of. This is kind of loose, but here, like, your sort of takedown of it. Or maybe, like, the truth or where it comes from. So this will be, like, our little game, okay? Okay, so, well, the first one I have, we kind of touched on this, so I'm curious. Like, we talk about kids drawing. So this is a trope I see a lot on TV. It's, like, the, uh, the, like, scary kid, like, the horror movie, where it's, like, the problem child drawing something really scary, like a monster or whatever, and then the parents get freaked out, and then, you know, bad stuff starts happening. Um, and we always see them like, like the child becomes a demon because they're, you know, in trauma. So that one, I, I'm curious about your take on that. I know, like, obviously that's not how kids are. But, like, why do you think, like, why is it always portrayed like this horror? Like, like these children become like monsters. Like, I see this so often. I feel like it's it's easy. Uh -huh. Honestly, I feel like <laughs> it's just, like, people being lazy. They're like, oh, if we have this seemingly innocent character all of a sudden have all these dark traits um like i feel like that's a really easy horror trope because it's just like you never see it coming <laughs> but it's become so like like you said cliche in media now that it's kind of lost its um horror aspect because now we can look at it and be like well actually that probably came from somewhere <laughs> kids just don't come out of the womb like seeing demons and drawing them like yeah. this is coming from somewhere what's how can we help this kid instead of this kid's a demon yeah okay. but it's it's that it's that um popular it's it's scary like i said because we don't expect bad things to come from a seemingly innocent place mm. Yeah, I like seeing it like holistically, like if that's happening, you're right to not expect it. And you should all the kids should also be right not to see it. So like there's more like keep going instead of. Yeah. Um, OK, the next one is OK, like court ordered therapists falling in love with their ward. Oh, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Where does this come from? It comes up a lot. I mean, the first thing I can think of is departed, but I feel like. You see this a lot where it's kind of like a young, maybe like usually single unmarried woman who's a therapist who's like just really wrapped up in her work. And then she just falls in love with her ward who's like a misunderstood, like maybe dangerous man. 
Well, first of all, if you see this happening in your therapeutic relationship, <laughs> get out. That is not a safe place. Uh-huh. <laughs> there's, a, there's a huge, you know, it's interesting that you bring up that it's a woman because there's a huge power dynamic when it comes to therapy hmm. where the therapist is in a very big position of power because of the client is generally being very open and very vulnerable mm-hmm. and there's a lot of ways to take advantage of that. And for maybe maybe these therapists that are falling in love with their clients, because I've heard of this the other way around, the client falling in love with the therapist, but that's pretty mm. easy to pin down. That's, sure, like oh, someone's, someone's listening like, to them finally. Like. <laughs> right, vulnerability, um, connection, acceptance, all that stuff, that it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, but like for the therapy... For the therapist to fall in love with the client, maybe it has to do with um, something that came up in their past. Like, for example, maybe they were denied power hmm. in maybe maybe they were in a past relationship where they were dominated hmm. by their and uh, and now someone's being completely vulnerable to them and they're like, oh, this is what I want, and that gets misdirected um, to where they might feel romantic love. Dang, yeah, I guess everyone has. Uh, their reasons um this one is similar but it's parents so this i think the one i can think of example is from what's that the fake bachelor show um uh with shirley appleby but it's like parent like often it's a mom but sometimes a dad where it's like parents who are psychiatrists or psychologists with really fucked up kids who are like they they treat them uh it's almost like they have all their clients but then they are all like overly diagnosing their child like or giving them overly met like too many meds or keeping them on a lock, lock and key and i don't really get this trope either because it kind of paints a really bad light on psychology and therapy and and then saying that like if you're a kid of someone who studies this like you're at the heart of the evil but wh- <laughs> have you seen that like where does this come from um i think it comes from a fear of it comes from a fear of mental illness and mm. psychiatry to be honest because it's easy to depict psychiatrists as wanting to like manipulate or mm. control because it, it again it has to be so vulnerable of a relationship to get into the stuff that's deep like that and so to see them taking advantage of something like that is is it's scary and it's easy Mm. um and another thing is i feel like stuff like that probably has happened Mm. and that is a psychiatrist or therapist that has gotten to the practice for the wrong reasons gotcha Oh, yeah, that is scary. This okay, this is the final one. And this is my fear. This is the scariest one to me is you like you start to really get to know this character or the person who's in the chair, you know, the the patient um, and and they really like share their story. And oftentimes there might be magical elements or very unrealistic elements. And then at the end, the therapist is like, hmm, it was all in their head. Like that this whole thing is like just them not believing anything or they the therapist acting like they are believing you and like, oh, that's so interesting. But at the end, you see they're like talking to someone else. They're like, yeah, they have delusions or they're like really. So this one always scares me because I'm always like, I feel like I'm coming off like insane. And then I'm always like, but do you, do you think I'm what do you think? What do you think? Like, so where does this I mean, maybe it comes from a fear, but I'm curious if this is a thing that happens more often than we think that we're going in and being vulnerable and you know, 
the therapist or the psychologist is just like delusions <laughs> you know the statement it's all in their head or it's all in my head always gets to me because it's just like yeah it's almost like i'm a human that's <laughs> conscious and have a brain of course it's all in my head it's me ah. like, are you kidding me right now true it's like i'm also all in your head therapist okay if you see me i'm in your head <laughs> Right. And it's like, it's not a binary, um, mm. like you brought up before, it's not a binary, like occurrence. Like we are not either just a body or just a mind. Mm. If it's, if it's all in your head, great. Figure out if it, if it's causing you issues, maybe explore that. Yeah, like huh. my existence right now is all in my head because I exist in my body and my head ex exists on my body. True. Like all of this kind of flows together. So like, even if it is a thought that isn't existent in someone else's reality, that doesn't mean it's not in your own. Like say you're experiencing some kind of like delusion or even a hallucination like that. Does that make it any less real for you just because other someone else doesn't see it? true like, if it's causing you stress and for someone to just go yeah but it's not real it's like the stress level is real <laughs> yeah and it, it goes back to like the the chronic conditions too like chronic pain someone says ow my back hurts um <laughs> hopefully someone's gonna not gonna be like oh no your back doesn't hurt because mine's fine <laughs> oh my gosh yeah true oh man Okay, I love that. That's a great way to put it because it's like your head is actually a physical thing and your so is your brain. So what you feel is still real. Well, thank you so much for sharing this, Julia. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, do you want to plug anything? I know, um, you, like, I know you're still in school and studying this, but uh, I don't know if you're working on any public things that people can read or you want to share anything for people to look at. Oh, gosh. I don't really have anything to plug. No, just like if you think you might want to go to therapy, go, go ahead. If there's nothing wrong about it, like the worst that can happen is you get like someone to accept you and validate your feelings for a little <laughs> bit. So like, even if you're like, oh yeah, maybe that's not for me. Like, true. It's rarely, a, it's rarely a bad experience. Love it. Um, plugging therapy. <laughs> I love it. Thank you for coming on the show. And you can follow this podcast at tell me anything pod and follow me at Larissa T on Twitter and Instagram.